Visible is a wireless carrier that is not invisible. It is pretty clear from the name, actually, radio waves are invisible. And I can say this with authority as a licensed amateur radio operator. That being said, Visible won't be giving you the power to see light outside the visible spectrum. It's actually way better because having that ability would make getting around very difficult and distracting. What you do get with Visible is unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. You get one line of wireless, just $25 a month, which is great in these times of economic uncertainty. That is one line for $25, taxes and fees included. So whatever you're doing at this moment, please stop. Switch immediately. Now, monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Wir gerne sehen in was ist los. It's dein Freundo Seth. I'm learning German. Yeah, in case you didn't know what that was. That is me trying to impress you with the little German that I know. Right now, I am actually learning German. I took it in high school. I goofed off the entire time. I did some other language learning apps. They taught me things like where the taxi stand is and how to find a bus, um, but not a lot of conversational uh German. Thankfully, that's what Babbel is all about. Babbel teaches you language conversationally, which let's face it, that is what you want to know anyway. I don't know. When I was in school, you learned like how to count. You learned like the colors. You learned the shapes. Those are all important things, but they don't help you when you're in uh, like Cologne, Germany with Ein Nierenstein, which by the way is German for kidney stone, uh, an experience I can unfortunately speak personally to. But I've been using Babbel to learn to speak German again, uh, better than I have before. I actually really like it because it is conversational. It's a little bit more relaxed. One of the things that it does that I really like is it'll sometimes show you what the literal English translation is. And I don't know why, but I find that very helpful in sort of understanding the structure, the grammar of a language and sort of putting myself into that mind space. Since I'm only in Germany for Gamescom, which is like a week, week and a half, I'm not immersed in the German language. I'm not immersed in German culture. So what I do is the second best thing. I'm taking Babbel. Hopefully this year when I go to Germany, I'll be able to impress all the Germans with how much German I know from learning through Babbel. The app has pronunciation recognition, so you'll be able to learn how to speak better with your accent, how to actually properly pronounce the words. That way you won't get made fun of by a, a group of older German men because you said Apfelstrudel and not Apfelstrudel. Um, no, it's really cool. Uh, I'm going to say right now there is a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now you can get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners because you guys are the best ones, by the way, at babbel.com slash realm. Get 60% off at babbel.com slash realm. That is spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash realm. Rules and restrictions may apply. Nintendo!
IGN's offices in San Francisco, welcome to Nintendo Voice Chat for the week of October 9th, 2014. I am your host, Jose Otero, and you are listening to IGN's all-Nintendo podcast. Per Schneider is joining me once again. Guten Tag, Jose. Well, uh, you, it's a very nice greeting because we actually have a very special guest this week. Guten Tag, Jose. Thank you. This is Julian. There's two. Julian, two Germans. I'm trapped. <laughs> Julian Egbrecht is here of Touch Factor presently. Folks may remember him from Factor 5, uh, which did some amazing work on Nintendo platforms. And he's here to talk to us today about what he's doing today and sort of the stuff he did on the way here. Great. Happy to be here, guys. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. So, uh, I mean, so you two know each other. You're both from the same town. <laughs> we are, from Cologne. I'm from Cologne. Yeah. You're from Cologne? Um, or you, no, I'm, ex, I'm, an, I'm an expat for three years, uh, Cologne guy. I'm originally, I was born in Munich, and my parents dragged me to Hanover, which is... Uh, I'm so sorry. Yes, it's it's like that line in, in New Hope when Luke says it's the furthest away from the center of the universe. That's yeah. Hanover. Yeah. And I'm sure I, I offended the whole city by now. <laughs> it's okay. I don't think we have any listeners in Hanover, right? Right in, if you, if you do live there. And we'll get you out, we swear. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, so we're, you know, obviously we have some history from the Cologne days, but I covered the N64 back, uh, you know, in the early days, and Rogue Squadron was was one of those games that got us really excited about the system. And then uh, on the GameCube, you know, um, uh, Rogue Leader was, I think, one of the first GameCube games we actually saw, right? Back that, in the that's days? very true, and you weren't supposed to see it. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we snuck a peek at it, and we walked out all starry-eyed, and we're like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> snuck a peek, do yeah. tell. No, we, I, I mean, it was... Um, it, it, it was amazing. Uh, you know, Julian show, showed us a demo of the game. <laughs> Not that I was supposed to. And um, <laughs> and we were just blown away because the graphics by far were, uh, you know, surpassed what we'd seen on the other consoles. So, you know, silly us, we thought every game on GameCube was going to look as good. Um, and, you know, yeah. there, was some, there were some, no, there were some impressive games, obviously, that came yeah. out on GameCube. We did a Let's Play of F-Zero GX, for mm-hmm. example. You F-Zero know? was amazing. Yeah. That was really, really cool. But, yeah. you know, to it. this day, you go and look at Rogue Leader and you see the self-shadowing just like the way that how authentic it looks compared to the star wars movies it, it, so it was amazing special yeah and, and, and we definitely want to hit on that because there was some really special work you guys did especially on the n64 and gamecube days like it was just amazing yeah um yeah. so why don't you take us through some of the early era of, of factor five i mean the company was founded uh, the internet tells me in 1987 <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's true that's true to a degree i mean the um some of the core people from from factor five um worked together if you can call it work um during high school school days in the mid-80s already. Um, and then later when the Commodore Amiga, which was an obscure home computer, um, came out, that kind of gelled everything. And um, everybody was in love with arcade games back then. Mm-hmm. Um, IRAM's R-Type was a, was a huge influence and uh, and Konami's uh, Gradius series, of course. And uh, so we wanted to do cool, everybody in the group wanted to do cool action games because the Amiga was one of these um, uh, platforms where the OS was in the way of good technology and good games um, and people who were trying to use the OS kind of screwed it up mm-hmm. um, so we switched off the OS and I think we were the first amongst the first games which did uh, back then it was Europe so 50 frames per second um, and oh, then 60 right. frames per second and it was it was clones of arcade games but it was I 
guess, pretty good clones. So you guys um, were like hardcore coders then who just wanted to kind of make games? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. We were, we were all in high school um, and then basically at the end of high school and just in this nice transition period when, when your parents just bear you at home still um, and they don't kick you out right away. University was a little ways away and uh, that's how it all came about. Um, and, and already at the time you guys had a special re relationship with music in games as well. I mean, I remember the Commodore 64 days and Amiga days, right? And and amazing scores from like the likes of Hubbard and everybody. And right, yeah. Did, did yeah. you already have, was Chris already a friend at the time? or did Yes, I mean, the, the, the way the whole group got together was, um, again, I'm the expat. I'm, I'm not from Cologne. So the core of Factor 5 really was from Cologne. Mm -hmm. And um, I joined the team from, from um, the Hanover area. Um, because I was good friends with um, Rainbow Arts, which was one of the um, early uh, game publishers in Germany. Mm -hmm. You might remember them still. Um, and they basically published a lot of the early successes in Europe. They like did Turrican. Yeah. Exactly. Turrican was Rainbow Arts. And uh, they, they kind of had that niche with the Amiga because nobody else was jumping on it. Because the UK was completely focused on the Atari ST. And that was not so successful in, in Germany. So Rainbow Arts was Amiga. And we said, these guys are everybody kind of coalesced around this company who wanted to work on the Amiga. So I met the other guys from Factor 5 because um, one of uh, one of by now a very good friend, one of the top journalists in, in Germany, uh, Heinrich Lehnhardt um, for the German listeners, who was uh, back in the day wanted to create games, had come to Rainbow Arts and immediately realized, hey, this isn't the real thing for me. I want to keep writing. Mm -hmm. So he dropped out and they needed a new producer. I had just finished school and uh, they asked me, do you want to produce games for us, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> which is wacky. I mean, nowadays that wouldn't <laughs> happen anymore. Um, so I packed my stuff, drove down to, to Dusseldorf, which was near uh, Cologne, and um, started to have a look at what was going on. And there I saw the earliest prototypes around Turrican on the, on the C64. Mm-hmm. Um, and there wasn't an Amiga version yet. Um, and I said, so, so what, are the, uh, what are the Factor 5 guys doing? And um, uh, because the first game, Katakas, had come out mm -hmm. and was, was a mild success, um, especially also in terms of getting sued um, because Activision had the official uh, uh, R-Type rights. Oh. Um, they immediately sued because there were certain similarities, uh -huh. I guess. <laughs> coincidental. I mean, at the time you it hadn't... Was, it was coincidental. Hadn't heard of R-Type even. Of course, yeah. yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so uh, Activision sued, and the funny thing is how the lawsuit got resolved was Activision had, of course, the official R-Type license, but they didn't have any coders for the Amiga. So they said, you guys cloned this thing damn well. Why mm -hmm. don't you do the official R-Type for the Amiga um, as retribution? And you only... <laughs> <laughs> and you only <laughs> and you only have three months for it. Um, uh -huh. So uh, those were the days. Well, that's so a real punishment then. Yeah, right? that's like, a real wow. punishment. So, so as opposed to before, where we had to find pixels which we had to change, mm -hmm. um, we actually could put these pixels back in and make them make them one to one. Oh, um, and and that's that's how that came about. And R-Type was was uh, a real success. Um, also, um, it was a really nice conversion in the day. And that's when the first collaboration with Chris Hulzbeck happened because he mm -hmm. was the in-house musician at the time for Rainbow Arts. And Chris did the um, pretty famous title track um, on the Amiga for, for our type. And that was right around the time when I joined the whole group. And um, everybody was kind of burned out from the, um, from the experience. And I said, well, so what are we going to do? And uh, one of our guys, Achim, was working. Um, he flew over here to Skywalker. 
Skywalker Ranch and met with the folks who had done the uh, the Genesis sequence in Star Trek uh, Wrath of Khan, mm -hmm. which was one of the earliest um, computer-generated um, right. um, uh, Not Sega Genesis, the, the no, terraforming, no, no. like yes, it the transforms the planet. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. The Genesis sequence, it's, it's famous in, in special effects terms because it was really the first time together with that uh, stained glass night and then, of course, oh, yeah. uh, Jim Cameron's um, Abyss stuff later with the um, uh, with a tentacle, with the mm -hmm. water tentacle. But the Genesis sequence in, in Wrath of Khan was really the first um, public showcase of, of computer uh, graphics. And a guy named, I believe, Lauren Carpenter, um, very famous in the field, had done that uh, with fractals. And fractals mm -hmm. is a mathematical way of generating, generating a landscape. Mm -hmm. So there you see landscape. That was 1982. So we were fascinated, um, Achim was and I was, um, with the notion of doing a uh, next generation sequel to um, Lucasfilm Games' very first Rescue on Fractalus, which was... Love that game. Yeah, at the time on the 8-bit uh, Atari computer, probably the most advanced game ever done. I mean, to this day, it absolutely blows your mind if you understand the technology behind it. It's crazy. Um, and and we wanted to do a sequel, and um, uh, Rainbow Arts and, and, and Lucasfilm Games were very close. Um, so Lucasfilm invited us um, and Achim spent some time there with Lauren Carpenter, actually learning about fractals and mm -hmm. everything at Skywalker Ranch. And he reported back that it was quite nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then basically got going on the coding. Unfortunately, the only thing which survived out of that early landscape technology was an intro sequence for an obscure game called Master Blazer, which came out on the Amiga, mm -hmm. which was a Ball Blazer sequel. Um, and uh, and uh, everything else was abandoned because we found out that actually the new generation of, of computers was actually due to the higher resolution not capable of doing enough and uh, that if you would want to crank what worked on the 8-bit systems to a 16-bit system then it suddenly wouldn't look good anymore I see sounds familiar mm -hmm. doesn't it with yeah. all of the 30 FPS stuff now on, yeah. on PS4 and, yeah. and on Xbox One um, because the resolution is simply uh, was even back then a problem but um, the cool thing was there was the relationship with Lucas already and and um, when um, we got successful then with Turrican, which was the first of my babies, really, mm -hmm. um, I, I had to get um, working. And we had the Fractalus project, and the other one was was this arcade game where we wanted to merge uh, essentially a bunch of our favorites, not clone one-to-one -one this mm -hmm. time, um, but, but merge uh, a few of our favorites. And... Uh, an Amiga version was needed, an Atari ST version was needed, and that's how with Turrican, really, um, which was kind of a more freewheeling, open-spirited version of kind of Metroid-y with mixed uh, with a few other things, how the whole thing came together and how it gelled, really. And that was nice. a huge success. Not yeah. in sales, because everybody pirated back then. And yeah. so when when did you? Yeah, that, I mean that was a huge <laughs> issue back in those days, know, right? Everybody and in Europe knows knows the Turrican games and has played them. And when you ask them, so um, uh, did you buy it? Well, how does that exactly? How, how does that make you feel it, as a game creator? Well, I'm currently I, I just launched a free to play game, so it, huh. I kind of came full circle. Oh, very nice. <laughs> okay. So and then you basically you guys you en ended up in in the United States, right? Oh, like you, right, right. Yeah, and you did do some work on the Super Nintendo, though. Yeah, yeah right? of course. Yeah, so yeah. so the way how it got really hot with oh, Lucas right. yeah. was um, one of LucasArts, uh, LucasFilm Games at the time, still love the name, um, yeah. LucasFilm Games producers 
um, was a huge Turrican fan. And uh, we basically met because we wanted to work on consoles. Um, and so I flew over with a bunch of the other guys uh, to CES, and we just toured publishers. And at the time, we had basically early um, early prototypes of uh, converting Turrican onto uh, onto the platforms. It wasn't done quite yet, mm -hmm. but we were looking for more work, of course. And we had built it on our own, um, the games on our own development systems, because we couldn't contact Nintendo or Sega, because they weren't really, as a development organization, they weren't existent in, in Germany. So what hmm. we did was one of our friends... Uh, was in the German Secret Service. And they, of course, had nice <laughs> hardware. That's no joke, the story. So they had nice nice hardware tools to analyze other hardware, right? So this was at the end, or basically the, the Cold War just had ended, so these guys were a bit lazy. Um, so what we what we did was we gave uh, a Sega Genesis and a Super Nintendo to him, and uh, whoops, development hardware popped out of there um, oh about God. three months later. And so we had our build our own development kits, that's amazing. And, uh, yeah, so I you reverse-engineered everything. We reverse-engineered the systems completely, which, wow. of course, really helps if you want to get the max out of them because mm -hmm. we knew down to the last bit how the hardware worked due to the reverse engineering. Okay. <laughs> and wow. I'm, I, I think I'm past the statute of limitations at this point. So. <laughs> sure. Chicken never finds you in the United States anyway. <laughs> no, Ninten <laughs> Nintendo actually uh, heard about it years later. It was very funny. Okay. Uh -huh. Interesting. Interesting. So, but, yeah, we built our own development kits and, uh, and uh, started building the Turrican game. Um, and uh, and then toured CES, and we met the Lucas guys, um, and they basically led us into their booth and said, "So, what do you want to work on?" And I I said, "What do you mean? What do you want to work on?" Well, you can have Jones. Um, or Sam and Max, or this and that, or that, or that. <laughs> I was completely wow. floored. It was literally like that. So these were this was the Lucasfilm games, uh, later LucasArts, of the kind of, this was uh, the days of the dig, or? This was this was the days of um, earlier even. Tim, Tim uh, rearing his head um, just at that point in time. So yeah. I think Day of the Tentacle had come day out. Day of the Tentacle, okay. Um, which, which, of course, was his first masterpiece. Um, TIE Fighter. Then TIE Fighter. Larry was Larry Holland and the team was was doing the TIE Fighters. Um, they were working internally on a Super FX version, which never came out. A Super FX, Super Nintendo version of mm -hmm. TIE Fighter, um, or basically X-Wing um, at the time, which never happened. But that uh, that team, actually, the the early gestation of that team, then later on worked on Shadows of the Empire. Oh, yeah. Um, wow. So they were working on that. What else was going on? Um, yeah, th those were, that, that must have been 92. It must yeah, have been sure. January CES 92. So um, in the PC era, kind of like the start of the PC era of, right. of adventure it was, games it and was everything. The adventure yeah. games were going. I mean, don't yeah. forget, that was on the C64 already oh, with, right, um, yeah. with Maniac Mansion yeah. in, in 86. So that's it right. was Ron Gilbert and these guys had been going on that for mm -hmm. quite a while. Um, whereas, and then and then Tim Tim Schafer really, um, because he, I think he started as an, um, as an intern only. Um, <laughs> Tim, if I'm wrong here, then hit me. Um, <laughs> He's but, a block but, from here, yeah, so he oh, can make it in time. Yeah. <laughs> he just no. He's running over right now. <laughs> no, but but uh, but Tim um, had done Day of the Tentacle, which was a huge breakthrough because it has it had the earlier um, humor, but it was a, a, a quantum leap on the PC in terms of graphics. And at the same time, they wanted to get so they had that going the 3D X-wing, which was Larry Holland's group, um, and then they had console development. Mm -hmm. And the console development they didn't necessarily wanted to do in-house mm -hmm. a little bit, but not too much. And that's where we came in. And they they had uh, sculptures of. 
Foxborough who did the Super Star Wars games. Oh yeah, that's right. In, um, they were they were out there um, somewhere, I think Utah or something. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where you find um, giant scorpions. Yeah, in the, exactly. In the sand. Yeah, yeah. That inspired. Them. And and, yeah. and we picked Jones. I mean, to yeah. to to come to the end of the story, what happened at that CES? I basically said, well, we would like to have that that thing with uh, wars and star. And mm-hmm. they said, nah, 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 nah. That's taken. Um, uh-huh. That's the one taken. You you Germans don't get your um, grubby hands on Star Wars, um, but you can have Jones, and that's how we did Indiana Jones: Greatest Adventures for the for the SNES. Okay, nice. <clears throat> so then uh, you were still sort of central, local, uh, excuse me, located in Germany doing yeah, work, we mm-hmm. and then you decided to move to the West, open U.S. offices. I want to say was that ninety seven? No, oh no, 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 no. It was, was it, before uh, it was that? earlier. We it started to become painful because they put us on um, uh, the early exploratory work because their internal, um, their one internal team which had worked on the super effects actually were the ones who were chosen as the dream team um, for early work on the Nintendo 64. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were chosen to be the PlayStation guys, PlayStation 1 when the PlayStation came along. I remember mm-hmm. meeting Phil Harrison and, and uh, Phil demoing it to me in, in 94 or maybe late 93. Well, it must have been 94. So in London, and um, and basically we had a look at it, and um, we were preparing for a racing game because the one thing which George had made up his mind about uh, episode one in 1994 already is that the whole movie would be based around this huge race. Hmm. Yeah. So and everybody had heard about Wipeout at the time that Wipeout would be one of the stellar titles. So we were supposed to do this racing game. Um, I suspect that probably the racing part of episode one existed before anything else in George's mm. mind. Wow, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Might have been because it's crazy. We even saw storyboards at the time. Wow. Uh, never happened. Would have been a lot of fun because that, of course, became Racer much later on yeah. and was actually done by the Shadows of the Empire guys. Yeah, that's right. Um, so nevertheless, we started work on, on, on PlayStation, and the first thing which we picked was actually Ballblazer Champions, because Lucas wanted to have a sequel to, uh, to the original Ballblazer game from the Atari 8-bit, and uh, we did Ballblazer Champions, which actually, in hindsight, was graphically gorgeous, um, but sucks as a game. This is the, the PlayStation version. Yeah, the PlayStation Because yeah. I played the original, version. you know, you have these kind of like uh, uh, hover sleds, and they have to catch a ball. It's yeah. like a soccer game with two exactly. players um, and, and, and it's first, in it's 3D. A, it's a, in 3D, it's a first person um, game and it's uh, and it's completely um, it's very hard to grasp for the player mm-hmm. which direction you're facing in the, the original game had already had that mm-hmm. um, and we we kind of made it not as 90 degree rotational um, but the same problem still remained that you were in essentially in a cockpit of a car which spun at 200 miles on the spot around mm-hmm. itself to orient itself to the ball um, probably a third-person perspective would have uh, would have been much 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 better, um, but but that was uh, Ballblazer Champions and. Uh while working on Ballblazer Champions, and we actually did a an upport, a report, redone, reimagination of Rebel Assault 2, um, which That's was full right. motion video. We reverse engineered the PlayStation um, full motion video hardware, <clears throat> which was all hidden by Sony. Um, do you remember so, that game, the FMV game? Yeah. I do, yeah. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I played it. Yeah, yeah no, no, we did, we did that because we added, uh, we said, okay, there needs to be a little bit more gameplay here than just <laughs> full motion video. So in the PlayStation version, we A, we redid the complete videos um, to have much higher quality. Quality. Um, and we actually did the TIE Fighters and everything with polygons. So mm-hmm. we extracted, it was completely bizarre, to retain some of the original gameplay, if you can call that. We extracted from the video sequences where their TIEs were, 
were flying and then basically tried to um, <laughs> replicate that plus put some randomness on it wow. uh, with polygonal tiles wow, and everything. It was a lot of work. I mean, I'm, I'm, it was crazy that Lucas went along with it. When I remember when I did the pitch, they said, okay, do you think it's going to be worth it? And it was worth it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, we had a lot of, lot of fun doing that one. Um, so but was that what convinced them to let you have the keys to Star Wars to do something on N64? Like, it sounds um, like you guys were hardcore Star Wars fans. What finally we convinced absolutely them? absolutely hardcore, of course. We were Star Trek and Star Wars fans. So some of our German artists over the years always worked for Paramount um, and, and, and did some work, <clears throat> did actually some work on the, uh, the Blu-ray um, stuff uh, for, for Next Generation. So mm -hmm. um, we were always uh, both sides of the camp, very much in the J.J. Uh, Abrams <laughs> fashion. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, that's right. <laughs> so so no um the what happened with with Rogue Squadron um is that going all the way back to the abandoned fractalist project we were complete nuts about landscapes so in the background we were always doing new demos of landscapes and real time landscapes um we we dabbled around in voxels they were still too slow and they're not comp um uh really editable enough things like that and then um what happened was that, that uh, LucasArts signed a huge deal with Nintendo, which was basically a three-game deal um, around Episode 1. Um, and the first game of that was supposed to come out in 98, which, of course, Episode 1 wasn't ready yet, which means that first game was still traditional Star Wars. And then the first, together with the release of the movie in 99, uh, was supposed to be the, um, uh, the movie tie-in game, and then another movie tie-in game uh, based on Episode 1 one year after. So, so none of them were Racer or one of them? Racer was, was the one shipping together with, okay, the, with yeah, the movie, yeah. of course. Mm. So um, the, the Shadows mm. of the Empire team, um, who had just finished that, moved on to, um, moved on to Racer. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, damn, how do we do this? Because nobody, you have to realize, inside the Lucas organization, nobody wanted to work on anything uh, old trilogy, at the time old trilogy related, right? Because everything was about episode one, the new yeah, universe. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be so cool. So they said, well, wah, wah. Th the Germans who had by now <laughs> moved over. Um, moved over. It was it was right after we in '96 made the move to to the U.S., which, by the way, was because of the the problems. The internet was too slow, and and mm -hmm. working on on PlayStation on the huge storage capacity was a nightmare. Um, we had to literally send discs back and forth. Oh. I mean, you laugh oh. about that nowadays. But if they wanted to see a build, we sent we FedEx the build uh, over there on disc, wow. <clears throat> which was completely insane. Yeah. Mm. And and since we were all, I mean, except for me, I had a family at the time already, but uh, everybody else was pretty much um, young and ready to move and we mm -hmm. just moved the whole company over in, in 96 with Lucas help um, and moved in next door to them um, in a nice distance but close enough and so since we were now close enough I think that was part of the whole thing around the um, <clears throat> the N64 um, which was really needed um, they kind of said well we have to do this traditional Star Wars game so um, why oh, don't man. we give it to the, the – the Germans have been so annoying for four years now, and they always wanted to do their, their landscape thing. So why don't we skin it with Star Wars mm -hmm. and give them the keys to the kingdom <clears throat> begrudgingly? Oh, wow begrudgingly um, and so yeah that's that's how Rogue Squadron came about it was basically our old idea of doing a landscape flight action game um, and definitely free roaming that was always in the in the cards and and slapping Star Wars onto it yeah <clears throat> wow. I, yeah I know I was looking at the um, I was 
looking at the Rogue Squadron box here, of yeah. course, the wonderful N64 card cardboard box, mm. and I'm like, wait, there's no Factor Five logo. Yes, there is actually, uh, but on it's that, on, the on, side, side, right? on the side, right? Yeah. This it. was a, this was a time when when publishers came to us still to talk about their games. They kind of didn't want to talk about the developer a lot oh, of times, mm-hmm. you know. Like this was a culture where it was all about the brand of the publisher and not the developer. Yeah, you guys yeah. must have fought for that logo. Um, hard. Yeah. yeah. And you also, uh, I see that you, the expansion pack was required. Um, no, it wasn't required. Was it was it? optional. Oh, it was optional. It was, it was, <laughs> it was required up until um, two months before the release when um, I had the choice between losing my head, literally, and somehow make it work in four megabytes. Okay. <laughs> and so you made it work. And look, nobody ever planned to use the, the expansion pack. It was completely nutty. To, to assume that that thing would come out. Nintendo just gave it to every developer because it made development much easier. Got it was it. planned to be shipped together with a disk drive, right? Because mm-hmm. there was the famous Nintendo disk drive, which never shipped in the West, yep. and which yeah. you can still buy in Akihabara for enormous amounts of money to these days. Yeah, 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 yeah I'm sure table. you do. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and the um, but the together with the with the disk drive, um, of course, Nintendo realized they needed more memory in there, and that's why they had the the expansion pack, <clears throat> and. Um they gave it to every developer because it made development easier. I mean, later, nowadays, even still, the, um, the, the tradition is that you've got, in the development kits, you've got more memory um, than in the final shipping console mm-hmm. because you need to have debug code running and things like that. Mm-hmm. So they had that, and we kind of got used to that additional memory, <laughs> I guess. Um, it really, really was nice. Um, and uh, I think by the summer of 98, um, so we were about... Um, we were terribly late on Rogue Squadron. I mean, I think we had the first, uh, that E3 was completely faked. We had a landscape going with an ADAT walking on there, and you could fly around with an X-Wing. We barely got to that point mm-hmm. after one year of development wow. um, because we had to rewrite the whole microcode. The, the, I mean, we had to basically tear the whole N64 apart because we hated so much about the machine and basically said that a lot of the N64, how what, what basically was available to the developer was really unsuited to action games. It mm. was suited for exactly one thing. Mario 64. Mario 64. <laughs> wow. The whole damn thing was built around Mario 64. <laughs> okay. And okay. if you weren't doing Mario 64, then you were kind of left out there. Yeah. And so um, we applied early on for microcode access, which at the time only had Nintendo internally and Rare. And actually, Nintendo Japan, I heard later, didn't even do much with it because mm-hmm. they were kind of scared uh, of it. And it was basically, it's this lowest level of coding. So this is programming yeah. to the metal, basically. This is programming to the metal much more than metal from Apple these days uh-huh. ever would allow. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yes. Uh-huh. Okay. So, um, so it was really basically um, uh, on the register level programming the machine itself, the hardware itself. And Nintendo never gave access to anybody except for Rare, who did cool stuff with it, of course. And... Um, and us and their internal teams. And um, because we made a good case that we couldn't do a landscape, a large-scale landscape, without having access to that and essentially rewriting everything that uh, SGI had created. And this is before um, even thinking about HD? Or, I mean, this was, what we call mean, HD? HD what, <laughs> yeah, well, the HD? No, the HD. High-res. The, the high-res we actually considered after f- um, fiddling around with the um, N64's god-awful um, uh, f- uh, screen filters, um, one of them worse than the other, um, for a long time and simply coming to the conclusion that none of them look good hmm. um, except in bright colored games with a plumber mm-hmm. uh, Italian plumber in there with a red suit mm-hmm. yeah. 
Um, so uh, we, we essentially said, okay, the only way to make this look good is essentially to crank up the resolution. Um, and we tried it out, and to be quite frank, our frame rate was already that bad that mm. the resolution increase didn't make a big difference. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. So you're like, ah, it looks good. Yeah, because the, good N- the, other, the other big thing which the N64, of course, had was it had, um, uh, it had a pretty gruesome uh, memory architecture. It was very, very hard um, if you were doing a lot of dynamic stuff to get any decent frame rate out of it. Um, Did you guys ever consider like taking out the dynamic <laughs> lighting or some of the effects that you guys used? Um, no, no. <laughs> it just it had to be done that way. It had to be done that way because <laughs> because there there's a certain minimum threshold. And I mean, we were we were just as bad or as good as the other games in terms of frame rate. I think mm-hmm. the only ones who basically sacrificed enough to basically step above the fray was really um, to thinking rock about the first it. One. Oh no, yeah. hell no, no, Didn't, no, no. That no, one no, ran no, at no. thirty, but, right? But, yeah, but we are we were also running at thirty most of the time. Thirty ish. Thirty ish. Yeah, twenty four. These days it's, these days the it's thirty ish, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Isn't it? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but no, I mean the uh, no F zero was amazing. That oh, they yeah, got sixty right. out of yep. it. I mean sixty <laughs> FPS on the N sixty four was amazing because they Nintendo um, did get and SGI not so much. I mean I can't blame Nintendo too much, but it was more SGI, which then later on became ATI um, and the and the folks Silicon who then did the graphics, GameCube. Uh, Silicon Graphics. Yeah, right, yeah I remember. Right. I forget that. And that I, group which yeah. built the N sixty four at Silicon Graphics then basically split off and became um, a what nowadays is a part of AMD. Um, which is basically doing ATI graphics. And that group actually was called ArtX later on. And ArtX did actually the chipset for the GameCube and the Wii. That's right. Um, or basically the, the two taped together GameCubes um, to, <laughs> oh. to, to, as, to uh, <laughs> as, 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 as developers Hacker, called as them. As Chris Hacker said. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so it was all the same people. I mean, if you if you if you track all of these names, the company names always change, but the people never change. It's the same guys still yeah. there. Um, so, but the N sixty four was the first learning point because SGI was a was not a console um, uh, developer before, and uh, Kotaragi san, of course, on the PlayStation side, was very much focused around the right things, um, which was basically sacrifice on the PlayStation one sacrifice, essentially um, render quality. Um, to get simply more performance, 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 which mm-hmm. is why PlayStation games had this problem that they had unfiltered textures and looked pretty gruesome. But damn, yeah. they had good performance, and yeah. it was and it was actually um, relatively easy for the developer to get to grips with a system, and that was PlayStation's great strength next to the BIS model with the uh, with the discs, of course. The N sixty four was a nightmare to get to grips right. with. Um, and yet, I mean, when when we all saw Rogue Squadron, we were all impressed, right? The visual fidelity, just the quality of the models. I mean, nothing had looked that detailed before yeah. this game. Yeah. You know, the, the the landscapes, and of course, you could tell you guys are total Star Wars nerds. Just the amount the of stuff yeah. that's in there, you know, from like little banthas and on the Tatooine hills. Like, there's just so much in that game. You wouldn't believe how how um, how long we spend in terms of looking at the different shades of gray um, <laughs> in in the Star Wars movies and got them exactly right for the at the time existing color correction of the movies then George changed it all and it all got bluer and now I think we're going back again so. yeah and, <laughs> and I, I met you guys for the first time back in those days and yeah. like I remember um, we actually did a before before that we did a tour of um <clears throat> You know, of the the Skywalker Ranch and all that, and yeah. like you guys, I think did did you at the time get access to some of the models too yeah. to look at yeah. the originals? Like yeah. you guys were s- 
first of all, it seemed like you were living your dream because yes, you absolutely. were, as yep. kids, like everybody in Germany was super into Star Wars, yes, right? Like absolutely. that's the movie we all watched like 40 times. My generation, when, when my dad took me in 1977 to, to, to see Star Wars, um, it basically, um, it was earth shattering yeah. for me. And I mean, my, my, my own kids actually have said um, uh, that they kind of regret that they don't have something similar. Harry Potter never did it on that level. Yeah. Um, mm. Neither did, did certainly not the Star Wars sequels. Yeah. Um, they, they never had anything, maybe a little bit Lord of the Rings, but even that is something different. I mean, yeah. Star Wars just uh, Star Wars was an absolute revelation to us. Yeah, um, I could recite the German, the horribly German dubbed version, um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I, absolutely down to the T. Maybe so. Macht mit dir sein. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so you guys basically went from a, a small, you know, group of hackers who worked on a bunch of, you know. Um, in some cases forgotten franchise nowadays like Ball Blazers to tackling Star Wars mm. and like did the phone ring off the hook after this game like what happened when this game came out after Rogue Squadron yeah, yeah of course everybody everybody wanted us um, EA wanted uh, to give us um, Lord of the Rings um, and which which at the time was gearing up um, there were pretty much every single uh, damn franchise under the under the sun was offered to us but but you never you never became a second party for develop uh, for for Nintendo right like a lot of these games have Nintendo's logo all over them and had some co-publishing stuff going no, on with we had this or? we had this um, we had this weird relationship with both co both companies the um, the good thing about um, George Lucas was that he um, Forbade uh, essentially buyouts of his uh, uh, of his subsidiaries of smaller developers mm -hmm. because otherwise, of course, LucasArts would have just gobbled us up. Mm -hmm. um, would have made a lot of sense. Um, and in the early years, <clears throat> they simply weren't allowed to do that. And especially huh. after Rogue Squadron, they weren't allowed to do it, which was good because otherwise, they probably would have done it. Um, so we kept our somewhat independence. Which was always nice. I mean, they were they were literally around the corner. They weren't in, in the Letterman district here in San Francisco yet. Mm -hmm. um, that was many years later. Um, but they were um, up in Marin County, and we were just around the corner from them. So Skywalker was up the hill, Skywalker Ranch, um, and so we were <clears throat> we were right in the center of the Star Wars universe. Yet we were just about removed enough that we could be critical of certain things, mm -hmm. um, which 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 were going on sometimes, which weren't so great at the company. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that made us it made it especially I mean we were the little rogue division almost um, wanting to work on traditional Star Wars still when everybody else was gung-ho about the prequels right. and they had to be pre um, gung-ho because that was of course what the mothership was telling them of course so um, did you ever work on a, on a yeah, prequel yeah of course we did game? Battle for Naboo, for Naboo. Okay. oh yeah we did Battle yeah. for Naboo which was the third game in the in the Nintendo deal um, because the the Shadows of the Empire guys did, um, did Racer and then we did Battle for Naboo which of course was a tough one because at the time the full full-blown backlash around episode one had happened mm -hmm. and it was really 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 hard to maintain any sense of enthusiasm um, for that project it's a it's a great game I believe I didn't direct it it was <clears throat> it was actually Brett Toasty uh, who's nowadays at, at Telltale and who was from the LucasArts side um, did, so I removed myself there a little bit because I was already on Rogue Leader, <clears throat> early experiments of Rogue Leader. Was it also hard to get excited about the models in the, the, yeah. the ships yes. and everything? Because, yes. I mean, the Naboo Starfighter, for example, the, the sleek yellow ship is such an awesome design, yeah. but you just don't have the same attachment as to this rickety X-Wing with the, uh, R2 popping out. You remember, know? The, 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 the Naboo Starfighter was actually a deeply, deeply, deeply hidden extra in Rogue Squadron. That uh, was, a, that was yeah. a huge fight to get that There's in because that, of course, 
cartridges was put in due to the stupid manufacturing times at the time, um, the cartridges, you needed to be done three months in advance, which mm -hmm. means we had to be done, I guess, at the end of August because we were the same Christmas as Zelda. Um, and we actually got the whole Zelda testing team, testing Rogue Squadron oh, right nice. after Zelda nice. was done. I hope yeah. you also got to test Zelda uh, before no, it was out. No, no we didn't. Uh, I only saw the versions at E3. Um, but Ocarina of Time was just done and we came two weeks after, after Zelda. So we wow. were the December title. And we had to be done three months before that, um, which means it was um, more than half a year before the movie hit. And we had that Naboo Starfighter in there. So everybody was mortally afraid because there was a complete media blackout mm -hmm. around any designs, everything. And we were actually the folks in the office working on the models and everything for that Naboo Starfighter had to have their own lock and under lock and key office um, where they were. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's wow. how it was. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was it was crazy. It was like I think only Apple is maintaining that that level of crazy. Uh, protection these days around their stuff um, and nothing leaked to their credit nothing yeah. leaked about yeah. it um, and we double and triple protected uh, the whole thing in the cartridge and then it was released the day the code okay. uh, the day the movie came out what, what about that Buick how'd you get that oh the Buick there? yeah that was, <laughs> did you have to get permission for that um, <laughs> yeah actually the Buick I think we did get we, we had to get permission for everything I don't think we ever snuck anything by I never believed in that um, okay. well we might have in some point but um, the early not, days, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Nom normally, I mean, the Buick became became kind of a stalwart. Um, didn't some? Didn't one of your programmers or someone no, have a Buick? No, not a programmer. It was it was Rudy Stemba, um, who was um, one of composer. our sound guys, uh, the composer and and uh, video post production um, uh, guy. He he basically did most of the video post production, all of our trailers, everything are always done by by Rudy, um, and uh, it's called Rudy's car. Um, because of that, his, his real name is Rudolf Stember, but mm -hmm. uh, as you know, it's Rudy. Um, and Rudy actually, uh, uh, when he when we moved over, um, he bought this um, '68 uh, Buick, um, and I think it still lives to this day. Oh, He's keeping wow. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. in it's not just in Rogue, right? It's in it's a in all of, of our games. Oh. It's even um, the the game which we just released on iOS, uh, Touchfish. Um, <laughs> you actually, have the Buick and yes, Touchfish? we have. A, of course, we have the Buick and Touchfish. Can you feed the Buick? Uh, you can't feed it but it's a very bizarre um, aquarium scenario where I think we've got a bunch of Texas oil pumps um, and, a, and a bizarre moonscape uh, combined with a Buick. Um, check it out. It's a very bizarre game. Wow. Respect. Respect. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to delve into the GameCube era <clears throat> with Factor 5 and then move forward from there. Cool. More when NBC returns. Welcome back. Jose Otero here with Per Schneider and very special guest, Julian Eckbrecht. So, Julian, we've reached the point in the story where we've heard how the Lucas, LucasArts or uh, LucasArts finally allowed you to make the Star Wars game that you guys had always wanted to make. Yep. You're out on, on N64. You also did a couple of other things on N64 really quick. Like, I saw for credits, you guys were listed in Resident Evil 2 helping with sound compression. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely and true. And video um, too, right? So, yeah, yeah. Capcom, Capcom was doing Resident Evil 2, of course. Uh, actually, Angel, uh, the, the ex-Angel Studios, mm -hmm. no, at the time it was still Angel, um, was doing Resident Evil uh, 2. Um, those were the guys who also did uh, J, uh, JK uh, Ripken Baseball or something. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, for, 
Oh, for Nintendo, they were part of the Calrican. Ken Griffey Jr. Ken Griffey Jr. NST. Good good game, yeah. Good game. Look, ask me about soccer. Don't That's right, yeah, exactly. That's why. Stick ball. No, but but they they had they were part of the Dream Team, and they are they became later on one of the Rockstar Studios, of course. Nowadays, they're one of the Rockstar Studios, the guys who did Red Dead Revolver and Red Dead Redemption. But back in the day, uh, they were Angel Studios, and um, one of their programmers, actually, um, uh, Alex Erhardt, uh, he's a, um, a very good friend of mine, and Chris Hulsbecks. And uh, he was a programmer there these days. He's at Qualcomm. Um, but uh, he basically contacted us uh, because he said, we have a real problem um, getting the sound into the cartridge. We figured out a way with JPEG compression and everything how to get enough of the of the visuals in there. Mm -hmm. But we need sound compression. And we had developed a, um, a voice compression. Remember, we were also the guys who were nutsy enough to have the first voice commentary, running commentary on, on a cartridge game ever. Um, wow. Because Battle for Naboo had, as one of its features, had a full-blown developer commentary yeah, yeah, running. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, so, so we had developed a special um, voice compression system for that and they used the voice compression system for Resident Evil and then also we did, I think Chris Hulsbeck actually did uh, the soundtrack mm -hmm. um, for, uh, Chris and Rudy actually did the soundtrack for Resident Evil. If you, you had a lot of little kind of side projects even at the yeah, time and, and later on mm -hmm. the on the current gen consoles you've done a ton for you know companies uh, to, to build actually their their video viewing apps and stuff you yeah, guys I were mean, always super nerdy about that stuff exactly right? we, we we worked on um, sound compression video compression mm -hmm. um, essentially the underbelly of the beast for a long 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 time that's how we got so close with Nintendo um, because after Rogue Squadron they realized that we actually had um, quite a bit of knowledge about um, sound technology mm -hmm. and that's how they got us on board for the hardware design team um, for for the GameCube, wow. um, right? I mean, uh, basically, we were a technology partner for the GameCube design. Um, and that's, of course, also was the trick, partially, why we knew the GameCube inside out, because we co-built the damn thing. And that was through um, music? So what was it called? Um, it was That was our tool set, yes. We licensed that, that um, we licensed it to Nintendo, and all of the third parties uh, mm -hmm. received that. But that was more, let's say, the um, the abstraction layer, one above, so that mm -hmm. you, as a, as a musician, could, um, with MIDI, do relatively um, good sound on a cartridge mm -hmm. um, and then later on the on the GameCube um, you could also stream of course mm -hmm. um, and uh, but but uh, on the N64 um, it was still for us um, to explore ways to get without wasting too much cartridge space um, to get all of that voice in there because Rogue Squadron had a ton of voice um, so that's how the voice compression came about we did graphics compression techniques I mean the, the cartridges were tiny back then and that actually um, got us the gig when Nintendo invited us well do you want to work on us mostly on on the sound side, but of course, the sound chip on the GameCube uh, was embedded on the graphics chip. So we had to we had to work inherently with the earliest prototypes. I, I believe to this day, uh, we were the first ones to actually ever work with the uh, with the graphics chip, even before it came to Japan. The first, very first prototype I remember. So the baby dolphin. The the, the baby dolphin, exactly. Mm -hmm. When when the very first dolphin, which was half broken, um, I think the very first thing that came off of the uh, of the pipeline, <laughs> um, we actually did tests on. We drove wow. down to because we were in the Bay Area, of course, and it was RTX was was uh, down in the South Bay in Silicon Valley. So Thomas, um, our main graphics guru, and my old 
partner, um, basically Thomas drove down there, um, and I I saw the very first bring up of of uh, of the dolphin uh, chip chips at Flipper. Yeah, Flipper. Flipper that's was right. its name. Flipper. So what were those <clears> meetings <throat> like? Can you sort of talk about any of sort of what? Um, yeah, sort of those I mean, it was it was very cool because Nintendo, uh, the Nintendo technology guys, and and Art X on the other side realized what were the mistakes. Um, I mean, we looked very very closely, of course, at what did the PlayStation write. Um, and um, aside from the media, I mean, the media discussion mostly happens in Japan because it's a very fundamental business. So business they weren't flying you thing. over there to Japan. To <clears throat> oh yeah, of course, I've been many times in Kyoto at, at Nintendo. But the but a lot of the um, more around the the chipset discussions happened here. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I mean, it was it, it to this day, of course, it was all under um, Takeda-san's um, group. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, he always was the head of, of hardware development Genyu in Takeda. Kyoto. Genyu Takeda, yeah, exactly. And uh, he was also um, the father, uh, to, together with um, Howard Cheng and and the group at Art X of the of the GameCube and the Wii chipsets um, mm-hmm. and the Wii U, for that matter. <clears throat> so, um, so we had lots of meetings and basically talked about well. Um, how much space, essentially for us, it was mostly to fight for a little bit of hardware space for the sound chip, for the for the sound DSP. Um, that was our main role. And then basically um, uh, to plan out what the DSP would be doing uh, and everything. And um, and But it was also the larger discussion of what did the PlayStation write and what did the N64 do wrong? And a lot of it came down to embedded RAM. Um, for the graphics um, on the graphics chip itself and not only generalized RAM. Um, I mean, the, the I would say the very first console ever which kind of pulled it off with the memory being just generalized and not specific for graphics is the PS4 mm. because, because Mark Cerny and his team simply um, waited long enough um, that the technology was available and the, and the memory is fast enough. Whereas back in the day, that was a big mistake, and the N64 made that mistake. Mm. Uh, it uh-huh. had way too little memory on its graphics chip. And um, that's why we learned from that and said, well, the memory needs to be on the graphics chip to be fast, but it needs to be more, uh-huh. essentially. And that's where, where they really hit the sweet spot with the GameCube. That's great, GameCube but was great. What, was your, what was your reaction you know, as an audiophile when you learned that the GameCube wouldn't have an optical out, for example? Did you care at the time? Of course we did. <laughs> <laughs> was that something you pushed for, or did that kind of happen later when Nintendo was putting together the machine and said, all right, we need to cut, cut some costs here or there, or was it just the architecture it just was our, wasn't right It was right our for job it. to push and to beg yeah. and to say, please, please, mm-hmm. please. But it was also our job to to uh, simply say, all right, fair enough. At the end of the day, the thing has to ship for this and this much cost. Mm-hmm. And we all know that the Xbox at the same time, the very first Xbox, not the one, but the one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. The fatty, the fatty one. Um, <laughs> that Microsoft um, lost a lot of money on it. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, yes, it had these features, mm-hmm. um, but they paid a hefty price for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they paid a very hefty price for it, and they got much more clever with the 360, which, which was basically uh, very much based around the, the, the design of the GameCube, actually, mm-hmm. um, of all things. If you look at it, hardware architect the 360 is pretty much a GameCube, much larger. Yeah. Um, so, but nevertheless, the um, yeah, it was it was fascinating. It was super cool to work with these guys, and we're all friends to this day. I mean, um, whenever Nintendo has anything. 
um, and and they're basically um, they need a little bit of help here or there or if we have some needs um, we usually call them up or they call us up so that's why why I think it's weird though that your first for your first GameCube pro project you went to Rogue Leader mm -hmm. instead of working on something directly with Nintendo you know like they obviously knew what you were capable of on the on the music side so immediately I would have thought oh you guys are going to do a Mario Paint or something or they knew what you were capable of with kind of flight games I yeah. thought they'd, they'd work with you on something else at the time um, we were so busy with all of the LucasArts stuff because don't forget we were at the same time working on the on the Rogue Leader demo for that uh, for the Space World unveiling yeah. in in um, 2000 um, at the same time we were finishing Battle for Naboo um, or basically not fin yeah finishing Battle for Naboo and Indiana Jones Greatest Adventures which basically um, was a port an up port basically with the Zelda mechanics of the Tomb Raider uh, Indiana Jones Tomb Raider clone mm -hmm. um, from the PC and we almost bit off too much than we could swallow there I mm -hmm. mean I remember I did the pitch we did it and it was a gigantic project and we never should have taken it because um, it was I mean it 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 genuinely took up two CDs on the PC mm. and we wanted to improve on the game. Um, okay. So it was probably the craziest project I ever worked on, wow. that Indiana Jones game. But being uh, such experts at sort of the action flight game and uh, being huge Star Wars nerds, did you ever want to make a Star Fox game? I mean, I feel <coughs> during the GameCube era, that, that franchise specifically struggled. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the later years, we we, we talked to them um, a little bit about it, but I, but I also do believe that um, at the time... We were starting to get a little bit of burned out. I mean, the Rebel Strike in Rebel Strike, um, the the experiments with the with the ground combat was certainly showing also the fatigue around. Mm -hmm. We've done so much flight uh, flight action, and actually, Rogue Leader, um, except for a few things which you r realize in Rebel Strike, Rogue Leader pretty much did everything. We it didn't do the speeder bikes. We wanted to do speeder bikes desperately. That's why we wanted to do them. But there's also a lot of filler content in Rebel Strike because we we kind of didn't have a complete game still in us. And since Nintendo, I mean, the next logical progression, of course, would have been online and multiplayer, right? Mm -hmm. Online multiplayer. But since Nintendo wasn't big about that, um, we, we kind of had to had to um, compromise in Rebel Strike when the next step really should have been that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Were you guys also pushing for that? For like, hey guys, why aren't you approaching online? This is where everyone else seems to be going in the console business. Um, no, because, because Japan, that? no, it was it was basically Japan was, was very, very adamant about the fact that it now wasn't the right time. Um, uh, and quite frankly, we um, uh, we knew that we had to to um, to potentially do a Rogue Squadron on a different platform, simply um, mm -hmm. to do online at the time. Okay. So yeah, when the Rogue Leader demo came out at Space mm -hmm. World, and I think uh, we we were actually both in Tokyo at the at the time for the yes. event, right? Yep. And, and you showed us the trailer, <laughs> and we said, "Oh my God!" I think you I know? showed it to you before it ran. Right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, exactly. And yeah. and you know, I remember there's too many of them, right? Like the the trailer <laughs> was just really impressive with the amount of stuff that was happening. And everybody, everybody thought it was fake. Just like all the other ones because the other ones were all pre-rendered I was blown away that nobody had a real-time demo yeah I was blown away was, was yeah. this they they showed a, a bunch of pre-rendered stuff like wave race and stuff like that too at Space wave World, race right? wave yeah. race was pre-rendered Luigi was pre-rendered yeah. it was all pre-rendered because nobody was as far along as we were yeah we we got access to the first chip um, I remember that day and it was the unveiling was in August and it mm -hmm. was sometime in early July and I remember pitching Nintendo flying up to Seattle and 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 pitching uh, Perrin um, and and the whole PR group, mm -hmm. Perrin Kaplan, um, that basically and and Howard Chang that we could do 
um, a, a real-time demo for the unveiling, and they said, you've got 19 days. <laughs> I said, okay, 19 days. <laughs> and those were the most stressful 19 days of my life. Wow. Um, and Thomas's life, yeah. And everybody else was working on the other games, which means it was four people. It was actually one graphics artist. I, I led the project. It was one graphics artist. It was one programmer, Thomas. Um, and uh, one designer, and then I think we got some sounds, so, so Rudy and Chris did something there. But it was essentially three people and myself not sleeping for for that was that demo. It was completely Jeez. insane. I was, I'll never forget when I saw when I finally saw it. I was just like, holy cow! And this was as as a game player, right? Seeing yeah. like in yeah. screenshots, or I'm pretty sure I saw a video somewhere. Where I was just like, oh my god, yeah. that, that level! And when I finally played it, that first level was incredible. By the way, just having the the Death Star sort of battle and all that, it was like, wow. it's still it's really? still really fun. And yeah. and uh, when we posted added. the trailer, there mm. were there was kind of like the there were people freaking out saying this looks amazing and the the hardware is amazing. And then there were a lot of naysayers saying, oh, it's just another pre-rendered demo yeah, exactly. we kept saying no so it's frustrated. not a pre-render because Julian showed us and but we can't say anything remember <laughs> I, got, I got you I invited you and Matt I think um, uh, which probably was against any rules by the PR department Never secretly happened. secretly into our offices so that you guys could actually play it and yeah. see it in reality there because um, there was a lot of skepticism around it okay. so so basically to confirm that it actually was real time yeah, yeah. there was a, that That was the subject of the day was oh that's a pre-rendered demo and look at the shadow Shadows here. You can't do that in real yeah. time. And look at the this. the fog and blah blah blah. Yeah. yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah. Um, so that that made that game certainly made made a big splash. And then you know I have the Rebel Strike limited edition preview disc here. Right. Yeah. Which and uh, you know what the the funniest thing about the whole thing is um, the hardware which we were running on the flipper at the time um, they actually had to downclock it later on. So we were always straight sixty. And then uh, just before E three of the following year two thousand one um, literally. Days before um, the um, uh, the unveiling, the official unveiling of the playable titles mm -hmm. for the launch actually was, Nintendo told us that they're downclocking, uh, that they had to downclock because the yields weren't good enough, um, mm. the hardware yields, and that they had to downclock. And we said, "Oh God," because <laughs> we were we were using literally every single bit of performance in wow. that damn thing. So. E3 was still done with the clocked up uh, chipset, but mm -hmm. shortly after that, we get the final dev kits, and we had to really struggle. I mean, we had another two months of just optimizing to get back to the same, wow. finding new tricks. Uh, it didn't. Uh, no, it was kind of in parallel. Um, although I would say that one or two of the levels probably suffered a little bit under it. Okay. I mean, when we when we later on revisited some of the Rogue Leader levels, um, especially the Academy, which is one of the later levels, um, uh, was in its in its conception much cooler um, than what's in the what's in the shipped uh, game back then. <clears throat> so post uh, so post GameCube, then I mean, were you invited to have the same role you did on GameCube on Wii? Um, there wasn't any necessity for that, right? Because the chipset was done. That's right. It, they just clocked it up. Okay. <laughs> That's right. No, I mean, it's true. With Wii, it, it, was, it was just that. So when you heard that, what was your kind of reaction? Uh, we were, oh, this, this, it would be awesome to work on that. Um, I remember very vividly at the time when I saw the... Uh, it was a Tokyo game show when Iwata-san was, was uh, for the first time showing the motion control. And I had an interesting feeling because I think at the time I kind of gauged that that would be a very, very big deal if they pulled it off nicely. Mm -hmm. um, and Wii Sports definitely pulled it off. It was the seeing is yeah. believing thing, right? Oh, like absolutely. you heard about yeah, the absolutely. specs of the machine, yeah. you're like, oh, yeah. no. And then you actually held the controller or you saw and somebody it play and you're like, oh, amazing. Okay, yeah. yeah, And you completely got it. And the interesting thing is in the interim, um, I mean, I don't want to go into 
too much detail um, because none of this, um, I think, is known um, that much. Um, but in the interim, there were, of course, several hardware tracks at Nintendo. Um, and um, believe me, the Wii was, was for quite a while, wasn't, uh, didn't have the chipset which it ended up with, which was essentially a clocked-up GameCube. But there was, of course, other trajectories for, let's say, more along the lines of a 360 or a PS3 console. But at the end of the day, Nintendo then threw everything into the motion control basket and it was the absolutely right decision. Yeah. So at the end of the day, for us, it was a little bit of a bummer because by that time, we had signed an exclusivity agreement with uh, Sony. And we all, when we when for the PS3, and we were actually working with Mark Cerny <coughs> and uh, the Ice team at Naughty Dog, and we were working actually on the PS3 to get the PS3 actually out, which mm. was <laughs> and a quite amazing ride, to oh. put it mildly. And that led to um, Lair then on the that PlayStation led to, side. That led okay. to Lair, yeah. and yeah. yes, exactly. Um, but uh, Lair is, is actually the um, the next generation Rogue Squadron title morphed into a dragon game and then um, <laughs> seriously cut uh, cut its wings. Um, because there was of course yeah. um, there was of course a next generation Rogue Squadron game, mm -hmm. um, and it never was. I don't think it ever was meant to be for. Um, for a Nintendo platform. Mm -hmm. the, it started out, as you might remember, there's, there, it leaked from LucasArts um, that we were working on a trilogy compilation, mm -hmm. right, at the day, in the day. And that was actually for the Xbox, for ah. the first Xbox. And the big thing for the Xbox would have been, and we had that up and running, was multiplayer, because we finally wanted to do online multiplayer. And of yeah. course, um, Microsoft wanted us uh, to do multiplayer. And you have to go, once again, back in the, in the history of people, um, because who moved over from Nintendo to uh, to Microsoft? Ken Lop. Yes. And Ken was, of course, our producer on the Nintendo side for Rogue Squadron and, more importantly, Rogue Leader. So Ken was a huge fan. And, of course, later on, then, um, we uh, Ken said, well, why don't you do uh, an Xbox version? And LucasArts actually also pushed us to do an Xbox version. Mm -hmm. LucasArts was, was very much pushing us. And we said, yeah, why, do, why don't we do it? Because we can try out the whole online gameplay there. And we actually had, the, we had it going. The problem was that then a lot of changes happened at LucasArts. Um, there was a rapid succession of uh, presidents, um, which actually kept on until they were finally shut down um, over the years. Um, it stabilized a little bit, but it stabilized too late for us, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Um, 2004 was quite was quite a mess. And um, what happened was that first they canceled the trilogy project. Um, and I don't honestly don't remember why, because we're we were pretty far along um, on the Xbox. Um, and then um, they actually, right, they moved us uh, on because we, uh, we were actually then moved on to a launch title for the 360. So uh, Rogue Squadron was supposed to be, the next Rogue Squadron was supposed to be a 360 launch title. Hmm. Um, and uh, that actually um, hit a few roadblocks because um, at the time, uh, the, the the people who were running LucasArts weren't too sure if um, that year if launch titles actually made sense. Oh wow! Um, which is which is actually a fair question yep. for a third party. I mean, sure. it's it's a very fair question. So we were pretty. It's a gamble, along. right? You yeah, don't. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as course, Xbox yeah. One versus PS4 right. has shown, you never know right. what, how so the we, battle shakes we, out. So we we had um, we had the early prototypes for the 360, the the G5 Max, mm -hmm. um, just before the just before the first uh, chipsets came and everything, and uh, we're working heavily away on that and. 
the title was supposed to be Rogue Squadron uh, X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. So it was all around nice. online, 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 online. And my uh, big pet peeve uh, was I really, really wanted to try a cooperative multiplayer because that hadn't been done in the online space. Because the versus we had going on the original Xbox pretty quickly, um, but the versus in space flight isn't that much fun. Um, that's why we our, our whole pitch was it was much more about groups because it's always about Rogue Squadron, right? Mm -hmm. So you would be Red 5 together with the Reds essentially attacking, and then there would be the Imperial side, mm -hmm. and that would be the two factions um, uh, duking it out in essentially the movie battles and then additional battles from our side. So it mm -hmm. would have given us the chance to do a next-generation graphical version of some of the battles which we had done before and also then really, really explore new gameplay. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a bummer that it, was, that it was canceled. And that then morphed into the moment it was canceled, um, Shu Yoshida from from uh, Sony basically held out his hand and basically said, um, "Come on, guys, come come on to the PlayStation team. Um, we're still looking for PlayStation 3 launch titles." And uh, I remember pitching Shu, of course, heavily um, Rogue Squadron, and uh, they said no. They wanted to have an internal one, so we had to come up with a a take on because we knew it had to be launch. Um, and we had to come up with a take on, well, what else can you do in flight? And that's mm. how Lair happened, because yeah. obviously Dragons, um, which um, then ended the way it ended <laughs> years later. There was no, no way to do a Sky Odyssey sequel, <laughs> take that amazing franchise it probably, over. It probably, it probably <laughs> would have made more sense in hindsight, uh -huh. absolutely, because sure. we, we, we uh, tried to swallow uh, and bite off and whatever uh -huh. analogy you can find um, way too much with, with Lair because it was far, far, far too uh, ambitious for a launch title, um, mm. let alone for um, an, an architecture as complicated as the PS3. Um, yeah, so sure. it was it was a pretty big mistake. So did you ever um, so did you ever want to make or have any projects for the Wii essentially? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we did. Um, I mean that that kind of concludes the whole story. Um, we actually in 2007 when our exclusivity um, exclusivity period with uh, Sony ended with PlayStation um, we desperately wanted to get back into Wii development because um, I loved a lot about the Wii and I had heard rumors that um, because we knew by the time that with an accelerometer what the original Wii remote had you really wouldn't be able to do too much more than Wii Sports. Mm -hmm. I guess that was the big problem that we had in hindsight. Mm -hmm. um, so it really needed the gyro which came with the um, Wii Motion Plus. Um, and, uh, of course, we had our old trilogy project, which we had 50% done, which was basically putting Rogue Leader and Rebel Strike with new content, with um, fixing some of the mistakes, redoing completely cameras and everything. Um, we had that back then for the Xbox pretty much going. So, um, But we had it in the old code base, so it also ran on the GameCube. So we, gl we glossed over Rebel Strike a little yeah. bit, but Rebel Strike, for those who haven't played it, it mm -hmm. has the, the awesome flying miss missions from Rogue Leader, but then he ha it has the not-so-awesome in hindsight. Yes, yes the, the, uh, the Robotron-type right. Robotron kind of shooter, yeah. right? Yeah, mm -hmm. the, so the, the Robotron... Um, type um, shooter stuff came about because um, both Brett Toasty and, and I myself, um, Brett from the um, from the LucasArts side, um, uh, essentially we were total Robotron nuts. And to uh -huh. this day, it is the greatest game ever made and Eugene Jarvis <laughs> is God. Um, <laughs> but, but that doesn't mean you should use its mechanics ever in a Star Wars game. 
yeah. ever. Don't do it. So that didn't Stay work. Stay away from it. <laughs> so for the, it did, that didn't work. For the Wii version, <laughs> you, you took that out? Or like, well, how did you massage it? How, the, did, you, how Wii, did you change no, it? No, we didn't massage it. We literally, um, because the level designs were actually, um, were were okay. We read at the camera um, okay. completely. Yeah. Um, we read at the cameras. We read at the controls. For the Wii version, what was really cool was, um, so we wanted to support every single control that you could imagine. So for the flight sequences, you would, for example, choose to have uh, the Mario Kart wheel to actually control your X-Wing wow. together with a balance board, which would <laughs> control the pedals. Um, so um, optionally. Actually, optionally. Op option, totally optionally, of course. You could, no, the cool thing was we supported GameCube controller as well. So you could play it super hardcore the whole game. Mm -hmm. And really the, 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 um, the on-foot sequences were completely redone. The Roboton-esque, um, so it was a lot more hiding and stopping. So typical more uh, cover gameplay. Not, mm -hmm. not as much as... Um, as uh, Gears of War or anything, mm -hmm. but um, there was there was really nice uh, gameplay there with a nice camera and everything, and um, so we did that. We had the speeder bike stuff, for example. You could finally do in um, you could do the right way, which means you had ramps, you had jumps, you had complete um, racing courses um, for the speeder bikes. You had the the forest sequence where you could bump into the other guys. All of that stuff, which really didn't make it into Rebel Strike or made it in a in a in a very uh, ugly way. Um, so then the, the one big element you didn't say anything yeah, about is course. everybody at the time was saying, hey, the Wii Remote kind of, you know, if somebody, you know, were to make a lightsaber game, that might not be a bad idea. Well, how about that? Where yeah, is it? Where is that? that? Where is uh, that game, Julian? Okay, so that game was part of, uh, part of Rogue Leaders on the Wii. And, uh, and it had 20 characters, pretty much everyone from the roster in different costumes and everything. Um, it was running at 60. Um, it was just one subset of basically the big classic trilogy Star Wars game. It also had Darth Maul because you would expect him with a dual lightsaber. And um, it was essentially using the motion plus um, and it was one-to-one -one mapped. It had force powers and everything. So it wasn't as primitive as the, as the uh, saber duel in... Um, uh, Wii Sports Resort. Mm -hmm. um, so you had as a modifier, so you had the one-to-one -one mapped uh, combat. You had way more the um, uh, the ducking and the dodging and everything was much, much more sophisticated mm -hmm. because they essentially reduced it down in Wii Sports Resort to a very primitive version. Um, and we had that uh, pretty much well figured out. And um, and it had force powers. You had Obi Wan. You had you had Darth Vader. We had all new locations. Um, mm -hmm. Pretty much every single of the famous um, lightsaber duels in the in the movie was in there. Um, and we had a new graphics engine for the complete game, which essentially was the layer graphics engine running on a Wii. Um, and believe me, if you ever saw it running on a Wii at sixty, it is by far, and I, I think I'm not overstating that, by far the technically um, most impressive thing you would ever see on the thing. Um, so Alas! It had, it had, it had so hard. where is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How far along did well, this go? <laughs> it was finished. Yeah. Wow. It was finished, yes. Um, and it never came out due to the, um, due to the shutdown of, of the American Factor 5 studio, of course, which happened at the end of 2008 because we were working on Superman for uh, Brash Entertainment. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bresh um, went bankrupt. Um, we made the mistake of basically keeping the whole team going um, instead of doing a layoff, which would have been the right thing. 
uh, quite frankly. And um, you were hoping somebody would buy the franchise from Brash or the assets and and restart. Yes, of course, because yeah. because Superman at the time it wasn't Man of Steel, um, but it was uh, was the Brian Singer version mm -hmm. before that. Returns. Right? Yeah. Um, well, mm -hmm. it was after Returns. So oh, Singer was okay. uh, was originally working on uh, before before then it was basically um, stopped and overtaken by Zack Snyder and basically made into Man Got of it. Steel. Okay. There was a genuine um, uh, Singer project out there, mm -hmm. and uh, and they had the rights to it. It would have been very very cool. Um, and we were pretty far along on PS3, on 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 360, and on the Wii. Um, open world, of course, and and flight combined with uh, inner city stuff. Um, pretty cool stuff, um, actually. And uh, I think at some point there was um, there was a there was a demo video which we did for it, which leaked actually. Mm -hmm. If you if you um, okay. dig deep enough, you will find that. Yeah, for folks at home, um, for context, Brash Entertainment was a company, a publisher that was trying to build um, sort of a a business out of license IP, which in the video game world. I want to say can be hit or miss, right? I mean, you guys have, are a great example of it hitting with right, sort of the right. rebel games. No, that you I mean, did and, and, the, and we had, we had complete games. we had complete trust that that it would work out for for Brash. The problem was that um, 2008 was the was the financial crisis. It was mm -hmm. basically the crash everywhere. Mm -hmm. And our problem was that um, we had essentially uh, Superman going with Brash. We had self financed, and here's the kicker: we had self financed the Rogue Squadron title. Um, because we finally wanted to get a larger piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. And LucasArts at the time was super happy about that because they had their own financial woes. Mm -hmm. And they said, great, if you finance it yourself, then um, yes, uh, you can, of course, have a little bit bigger part, part of the pie. And we said, fantastic. And then our third project was our take on Pilot Wings, um, which was called We Fly at the time. Okay. Um, yeah. and, and that one we were doing for a new publisher, an upcoming publisher in New York, um, called uh, Greenscreen, who crashed and burned throughout the crisis, unfortunately, mm. also. And so within a matter of three months, uh, essentially, two of our publishers went uh, went out of business. Oh God! And we made the mistake. It was a it was a terrible a terrible Christmas, and it was just before Christmas, which was the worst thing. And we made the mistake of exhausting every single reserve penny that the company had with essentially uh, keeping the Superman team on staff, which was in hindsight, of course, a big mistake because mm -hmm. we thought the project would be taken over. Until then, everything came to a head, run ran out of money, and uh, the studio and the company had to be shut down. And um, then, but um, LucasArts still existed, and you had course, a finished game. So, so how did so that? First, first, we approached LucasArts and basically said, "Can you bail us out?" And they said, "There is absolutely no way because they didn't have it in their budget." Um, the second step then was that we basically said, "Okay, their their uh, LucasArts basically pointed out that if the company would go under, Lucas actually had due to uh, due to an old." Uh, Leon, or basically an old debt which Factor 5 had with Lucas, they said we would get anyways everything from the company. Oh, man. Which was especially bad because, of course, that meant they would get everything from the company before our employees wow. would get paid. Because wow. they were first in line. Mm -hmm. And we said, okay, damn, we have to solve this problem. So what we, what we said was, okay, it's all solvable. There's a nice solution here. So we finished the damn Star Wars game somehow. Um, and LucasArts just basically bails that out, essentially pays the debt, and they will easily make their money back. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, 
LucasArts didn't want to have anything to do with it um, mm. because they were very, very risk adverse. And of course, there was a potential uh, for lawsuits and everything um, and, and all of these ugly things. And they absolutely didn't want to have anything to do with it. And um, we got support. I have to say, everybody tried to support us. It was awesome. I mean, um, Namco tried to step in and help us. Um, lots of people from the industry tried something. But the, the climate was so toxic for any money to be raised around that Christmas that then in the early days of 2009, it all fell apart um, oh, and, and ended in, in essentially in bankruptcy courts and everything. And that's, that's uh, where LucasArts at the end of the day, then I think a year later, stepped into the court and basically collected all of the assets, which were theirs. Um, nobody ever got paid, which is the, I mean, there's, it, the, there's, the, there's the artistic loss of that game, which I think everybody on the team agrees is the best work they've ever done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, outside, of course, of Touchfish, um, which is our new one. But yeah. lots of people, of course, were also on the team who are not on the current team. Um, but there's also the, 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 the human toll and everything that could have easily been resolved by just getting this game out. So um, it, was a, it was a huge problem. So now the assets are somewhere, and in my mind, I'm hearing there are top men are working on yes, it. Yes, exactly. Top, top men. men are working mm -hmm. on it. They're exactly at that end of that warehouse uh, where oh, the Ark man. is. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's what I pictured in my head. Just the Ark of the Covenant is right next to yes. the copy of... And the unfortunate thing is that, that of course, legally it was all sound. Um, it just would have taken that little iota of basically believing in in a game um, to actually resolve the whole the whole situation. And you were in, targeting in nice it around way. the time when we was still sort of. Oh yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. It was, it we we totally were before we were before Skyward Sword. We, we before Connect Star Wars too. Uh, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, but that was like the promise. Now you'll control a lightsaber. Know, I, I didn't know. work. Obviously, but of course, but, yeah, of course yeah. it wouldn't yeah. work. I mean, yeah. to use to use the old Connect for for a lightsaber game was complete insanity. Yeah. It was yeah. it was complete insanity. I don't know why they even attempted it because we had enough problems, even with the Motion Plus, um, to actually get around the problems of just how exactly one-to-one -one you had to be for it to not fall apart. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't mm -hmm. believe how critical you are the moment you don't have a big me head um, with a me body, yeah. um, but you have Luke Skywalker versus um, Darth Vader, and suddenly your level of criticism goes up tenfold. We, mm -hmm. we worked on the, on, the Saber, uh, on the Saber dueling alone um, with a large part of the team um, for a long time. I mean, at least a year and a half. Um, wow. uh, the Nintendo gave us early, I mean, to their credit, for example, they gave us early prototypes of the Motion Plus specifically for that. Um, where we so they were on board. Yeah. Oh, Nintendo was completely on board. Of wow. course. Yeah. Okay. No. Would you ever try it again for Wii U? Uh, it would be the perfect current platform for it, but um, the problems are first of all, um, I don't know. I mean, Disney now would be the owner of the uh, of the assets, and maybe right? EA too, right? Because EA licensing licenses right, right, a lot of the right, Star Wars exactly. stuff. Right, um, uh, They would be. I, I don't know um, what the what the trajectory what we use right now. Mm -hmm. To be quite honest, um, so that that is part of the problem, no doubt about it. Um, despite all of the fantastic games there, um, but it's it's the only platform right now which nicely would support it. Um, yeah. Although I just saw yesterday a fantastic Microsoft uh, tech demo from Microsoft Research where they actually were tracking hands uh, one to one mm -hmm. um, and really one to one with a Kinect. Um, wow. I don't want to know how much CPU they're using for that, but it, it actually was very nice looking. Um, so maybe sooner or later a hardware sweet spot will be hit again, and it would be awesome. I mean, we, we certainly would 
love to talk to Disney about it um, and and basically Lucasfilm and of course with JJ's uh, comeback to kind of the traditional trilogy feel I think there's going to be a lot of commotion around that um, I just don't know um, if we if we will be a part of that or not mm-hmm. well we certainly hope so <laughs> it yeah. would be awesome yeah. no definitely we'll take a break and then uh, yeah. talk Touchfish yeah let's yeah. do that mm-hmm. alright so we'll be right back with more <laughs> Nintendo Voice Chat and welcome back. So, Julian, you started a new studio. Um, how recently? Touch Factor. Uh, Touch Factor actually was started four years ago. Wow. Um, yes, four years ago. And uh, it's pretty much, if you look in the in the credits um, for, for Touchfish, which we just launched a few uh, weeks ago, it's, um, it's kind of the... Pretty much, almost exactly the Rogue Squadron team. Um, it's almost all of the uh, of the old timers from the Rogue Squadron team, because in 2010 we said, well, why don't we regroup? This time we're not going to take uh, money from a publisher, um, and uh, we we want to figure out a way how to use our technical expertise to actually finance game development to a certain degree. And um, that's what we did. Um, And the way we did it was that um, we essentially financed a lot of the early development on on Touchfish with um, work for um, video on demand services. So what most people do not know, if you nowadays use Netflix or um, Hulu or um, a bunch of the other services, um, even YouTube, um, on uh, any of the consoles, then there's a pretty high likelihood that we actually did that. Um, it's funny. I mean, we even <laughs> talked to you guys um, be- before. No, yes. before the Wii U came out, we yep. even talked to Touch Factor. You know, mm-hmm. IGN wanted to release an app at launch for the Wii U. That's true. Yes. And yep. uh, we talked to these guys because they had basically written the book on doing on video on the on the Wii U. Yep. It, you know, ultimately Nintendo didn't want to want to pursue that kind of app uh, app strategy at the time and yeah. so we couldn't do it but like you guys were just right like it, hip it, deep in that kind it, of development it happened in the dark days of late 2009 when when we basically saw the original group kind of dispersing completely um that uh, uh, actually old uh, acquaintances from divix of all places mm. if you remember that remember we them. had worked together with uh, in 2002 and 2003 to uh, to license our video codec under the divix brand mm-hmm to other third parties um, for the GameCube and and also for the Xbox. Um, Someone from there ended up at Netflix when Netflix just had their first positive experience with a 360 uh, client. And uh, they basically contacted me and, and said, well, we would love to be on the Wii but we can't get on the Wii um, because it's impossible, everybody is telling us. And we said, oh, nothing is impossible. <laughs> of course, we were completely broke. So we just said, all right, let's 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 somehow g- hack this together. So within um, uh, two weeks or so, we hacked together um, a Netflix demo um, on the Wii. And, and basically, I I think they were very positively surprised. Um, nice. And Huge. I mean, m- many people don't know that, but the Wii quickly from it, it, it was a Wii Sports machine for the mainstream and it mm. quickly turned into a Netflix machine right after, right? Yeah, and yeah. talking to folks over at Netflix, the Wii was by far the most active platform out of all for Netflix viewership wow. because a lot of people that had bought the machine were casuals yeah. and didn't actually go back to play games, mm-hmm. but they certainly used it for video streaming despite the, the low definition, the standard right. def. Yeah. Right. Well, exactly. didn't it need a disc as well to run? Was that Initially, we shipped on a disc, yes, mm-hmm. and then later on it was, was purely uh, in the store. Um, the disc was purely because um, initially you wanted to distribute 
contribute really on a disc because mm -hmm. that was the best way to get it out there. Um, I mean, a little known fact is also um, <laughs> we, we then went on and we did a PlayStation 2 version of Netflix for the South American launch of, of Netflix. What? We did Yes, we actually got the complete Netflix client, the, the thing what you have on the PS3 exactly the same way going on the PS2. <laughs> wow. It <Holy laughs> was cow. our first PS2 project. So was you guys are wacky. wizards. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I love how you go from really hardcore, you know, like really deep programming and, and I mean, super nerdy <laughs> approach to video yeah, game man making. Expertise. Quite honestly, yeah. from that, um, you know, like... You, you go into the the Wii age where it was getting more and more casual and you kind of sat that out and you ended up in a more casual place now, we right? Did, like we did end up because for the game side, so we, we very much stayed in contact with uh, PlayStation. Um, we did, of course, we, we were with the launches of the PS4 and with the Wii U, we had our VOD app. So we were at launch titles actually for all of these consoles mm -hmm. without oh, anybody yeah. knowing stealthily about it. Stealthily hidden. Yeah, stealthily hidden. So we, wow. we had all the fun that you have with a launch title and not so fun. Um, we had every single time, um, PS4, Wii U, um, 3DS, we did the 3DS uh, Netflix client back then, and so on and so on, pretty much Vita, now PlayStation TV in a few days, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so we did all of that, while on the game side, we said, well, what is our passion right now? I mean, I'm, I'm in my 40s, right? And um, uh, yes, I still play Destiny a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I still play um, some of the games, um, the more hardcore games, although I'm not into military shooters. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I played some Drive Club last night. That's too bad um, for you so because there's too many of them. <laughs> I know. Um, but I'll leave that, I'll leave that to, to, to my sons. Um, and, and I never really clicked with fantasy. So when, when actually the whole social genre started to explode on, on iOS. Um, I never was into Facebook, I have to say. When, when the whole Facebook gaming um, happened, um, I was skeptical about that because I wasn't a desktop guy. But when iOS, when you saw the trajectory of what Apple was going for and how brutally they would ref and the power VR, which was the right choice, by the way, they made in terms of what they have in the GPU hardware, mm -hmm. because that's why they're constantly outperforming the other guys, because they're doing the right thing there. When we saw that trajectory in 2010, we kind of predicted that by around 2013-14, the hardware would be powerful enough that we could ship something which we wouldn't be embarrassed about mm -hmm. um, in terms of visuals um, and, and which, uh, because we didn't want to do 2D. So then an old fascination of mine and some of the other guys in the team was actually virtual pets. I loved the concept of, of Tamagotchi. I was a huge Nintendox fan. Mm -hmm. And I think Nintendo, due to the limitations of their platform partially, um, kind of missed out on some of the broader developments in terms of social. So when we when we founded Touch Factor and now worked on Touchfish as the first one, we really wanted to reinvent virtual pets, which I think it does. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to push some of the wacky technology stuff. So for example, uh, we're using the cameras to to look at you the and reflection. to map your reflection into the eyes because the eye is the the window to the soul, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if you if you look into the eyes of your of your virtual pet and you see you see your self-reflected, it actually strengthens the, the virtual bond a little bit. What we also do with that, though, is we look at your emotion, and if you smile, then we actually detect the emotion, and uh, you actually get rewards for, oh, that's for really that cool. smile. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. That, so and that's, that's, that's the first thing that struck me, though. Like, we're talking, you know, we're on a Nintendo podcast here, and we're talking about, you know, a foremost, like, tr traditional Nintendo studio. I mean, you've been, you've done stuff like Lair, but you really, um, you know, you really established the Star Wars games as Nintendo franchises back in the days. And 
like I look at Touchfish now. I'm like, all right, there is still the t- the crazy factor five with the, you know. I- I don't want to say unnecessary, crazy <laughs> technology stuff like the reflections, which I'm yep. like, what the hell? I can see myself in that fish's eyes, right? They came and showed me the fish. I just <laughs> want then, you to know that. The, the, my, my fish name is Jose, by the way. Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, okay. And thanks so, uh, uh, <laughs> and, and the other thing, just how much like a Nintendogs, kind of like a Nintendo traditional game it is, right. too. You and, know? and taken to the next level, because you, with a touch, of course, you suddenly could, um, you have a much closer connection with your virtual pet. Mm-hmm. And then what we do have is the farming aspect in there, which is, of course, all of the other aspects of the aquarium. But what's cool is somebody who's a world builder, like mm-hmm. a Minecraft fan, they, of course, can can basically, because it's all physics-based, the whole game is physics-based, they can basically get their aquarium and their tanks, they can build out whole coral reefs, mm-hmm. but with real physics. You can switch over to full real physics, and that allows us to do mini-games as well with the physics. So um, you've got mini-games in there where essentially, um, which are far beyond the level of an Angry Birds or something. Which like the art of can, balance style yeah yeah yeah, exactly because because it's all uh, physics driven and it's so it's so benign it's so casual and everything that people don't um, I mean our goal was that people don't realize how unbelievably um, uh, much technology is in that game it's probably Mm -hmm. I I have to say I don't think there's another one uh, which uses the breadth of the um, of the Apple hardware as much as this does Mm -hmm. Um, and and Apple um, to that point actually um, has was was very very pleased whenever we showed it to them. Um, that's why they also gave us quite a bit of support together with the iPhone 6 launch. Um, but so, yeah. super, super scary, though, from a monetization perspective. You, know, you used to make 60, what, 69? Well, how much were N64 games? They were even more in some cases, right? right. Like mm. Shadows was like depends 65 on, Yeah, it depends on how much memory you were using in the cartridge. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, you know, you went from big expensive games to now you worked a whole lot a of hours. Well, we went to a big expensive game, which was mostly a a hobby dream come true four-year project, which finally is out, which is free to play, which financially, I mean, downloads wise, um, of course, we were immediately, especially due to Apple's feature, we were immediately in the millions, mm. um, which helps a lot. That's but awesome. yes, the monetization, of course, is scary because we don't know yet if it's going to succeed on that level enough that it can sustain the studio. Uh, and, but that is just the nature of free to play. And have yeah. you guys learned some of the tricks of the, you know, the most successful studios on iOS? monitor the user behavior to the to the second right like what are right. they doing we're, if we raise the price what happens we're, we're doing we're doing all of that but our approach is actually um, is slightly different in the sense that you could argue that outside of the versus games what supercell is doing right now uh, with clash of clans mm-hmm. um, the traditional games in terms of monetization are not monetizing enough anymore um, uh, candy crush and 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 um, and clash of clans are probably the only ones which are making really a lot of money and really a lot of money. Yeah. So they are and essentially puzzle, taking puzzle and dragon, of exactly course, in, puzzle in and Asia, dragon. Yeah. Yes. Um, so what our approach is uh, actually is that what you have in the current version, which is out there, um, is missing the biggest feature and actually the coolest thing, um, which we are shipping in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't make it for the 1.0, but that's the beauty of you can just ship every few weeks a new version. So. Our approach to the whole thing is that um, we worked on virtual evolution. So you might have noticed that there are these fish in there who are their bu- your buddies, right? It would be completely crazy if we would have, um, on that level of graphics artistry, would be building more and more and more and more and more. So what we've been working on for the last few years is um, that we've figured out a way how to technologically breed, essentially, 
these guys. <laughs> so what you see in the game right now is essentially just a starting point. In a few weeks, you will be able to breed them together. And then they have a genetic code. And the genetic code actually is generational. So the genetic code, you can breed into certain directions. And we've got a marketplace for that, very similar to what Valve uh, is doing on Steam for some of their titles. Mm -hmm. We've got a marketplace for that user-generated content for your own bred um, uh, uh, animals, who you can either keep and then basically nurture yourself, or you can essentially sell it to others in the community. Nice. Yeah. Um, Just watch out that you don't create Skynet. That's my only, <laughs> yeah, my no. only worry. And it's here. all in the cloud. So the cool thing is that we also, if somebody is a Facebook denier, I understand that completely. If you mm -hmm. don't want to engage with Facebook, if you don't want to engage with Game Center, that's fine. But Touch Factor has its own touch friends. Mm -hmm. And the moment you log in, we give you encounters because we also have our mini games and we use our leaderboards in the mini games to suggest to you friends who then you can visit their worlds and can play with their pets and mm -hmm. have your pets play together with their pets. So even if you're completely I want to stay out of this social network. I mean, obviously, the ideal scenario for us is that somebody is Facebook connected or Game Center connected, and that's all fine. But even if you don't do that, then um, without any, any, any pushing, we suggest to you these encounters. And we're using Apple's iBeacon Bluetooth technology that if you've got an iPhone and you've got TouchFish on there and you cross somebody on the street... Mm -hmm. Then actually the pets virtually meet. Would you say? And in the evening, that's, that's would you say mess. you street pass each other in the street? You iBeacon pass. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So yeah, I heard I, I heard you guys yeah. were were thinking about the, yeah. that kind of feature. That's all in there. That's yeah. already all in there. The only thing that isn't in there is our is our essentially family feature, which is basically you using the fish to basically breed other fish, and then generations of that. And when you really like them, that you basically put them out and. And sell them to friends or mm -hmm. um, sell them to a wider community, put them out for, for adoption and everything. So uh, we think that that will be a real kicker in the non-competitive um, uh, free-to-play space because it needs something else which basically uh, which basically helps in the monetization. Mm -hmm. and, and this is really our, our true breakthrough. Everybody's blown away by all of the different features and the graphics right now with volumetric lights and mm -hmm. everything and soft shadows on the iPhone 6. Um, but but you will be really blown away once you once you see uh, that stuff with, very with cool. the virtual evolution. Yeah. No props yeah. to you guys, man. I love the the attitude of like, hey, you know, uh, when you said earlier, like we did want to make a. It sounds like you guys wanted to make a mobile game for a while, but it was like, no, the we don't want to make something that's that we feel is going to be embarrassing or oh, not live up no. to the pedigree no, of who we not. are as developers. And even when you said I don't want to do two D, I was like, wow. Yeah. Just, I admire that. Like, no, very we've, much. We've got. To that. I mean, we just, we just uh, closed a um, uh, on the video on demand side. We just closed a multi-year exclusivity deal with Hulu. Um, I'm a nice. VP at Hulu these days. Um, uh, also, so um, we certainly don't need or didn't need to make a game. This was really passion, and it was, it, it was, it was very nice that it was there, okay. um, because. I haven't worked with such a passion. Certainly, um, Lair got off its rails pretty pretty early on. And Rebel Strike, we had a burnout already uh, in quite a ways. Um, we got really, really passionate about Rogue Wii, which is an unbelievably sad story that it mm -hmm. didn't come out. So that, that all of the passion was into that. And then everybody kind of had the Star Wars thing out of their system for yeah. a while. And and we all rejiggled our passion for, for this. And it was a pure passion-driven project where we just did exactly what we wanted to do and kicked out what we didn't want to do. No publisher influence. That was awesome. Yeah. So I guess my, my last question for you is, uh, 
when we started the story, you talked about being sort of the uh, the outsider to the group that mostly was in Cologne that was to become Factor Five. That's true. You eventually <laughs> became the president of the company. Can you <laughs> yes. talk a little bit about that. How did that happen? Was that something you wanted to pursue? You felt like that was sort of the natural progression for your skills, or no, not at did all. Did you just I get was, elected for this? Yeah, like, I was. I was kind of the biz dev guy. I mean, it it was always um, it was an engineering driven company, and to this day, where everybody in the group um, is is engineering driven, um, and I was the one who always felt it was relatively easy to um, to do the business development and to mm-hmm. basically get the deals. Um, I mean, a lot of it is the passion of the whole team, but somebody needs to sell that passion, right? Mm-hmm. And some of our guys are very laid back, and you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily notice the passion right away. I'm pretty good at selling the passion, um, and and that's why why it simply became the inherent the inherent bit. Um, I don't think I was made for it, not at all. Um, I just stumbled into that. Well, I'm looking forward to you selling the concept of a Star Wars Wii U game back Please. to uh, back to Disney because we need somebody to sell them on there. Or you know, Nintendo was looking for partners for Star Fox. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that. right. At Wii U, uh, they said that E3. <laughs> did, you see, did you see that demo? I I, I saw that demo. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. We're like, we'd love demo. to make a Star yeah. Fox game. We just don't know who will make it. <laughs> mm. All right. Maybe there's somebody at Retro there. Maybe mm. there is. Uh, well, the the uh, um, uh, the Bayonetta guys. Um, I mean, Bayonetta is, is yeah. platinum are awesome. I yeah. mean, it's the old it's the old uh, Konami uh, team. I think some some of the guys from Treasure are even there, right? Um, I mean, these guys would be just perfect for it. Um, okay. I think to a certain degree because it's a, a Miyamoto property, it's always tough to do that as a Westerner. Um, mm. Because the communication with Japan isn't that easy, um, so I think the best result for Star Fox very well might be if it's either a retro, which has a long um, embedded um, experience there, or if it's actually a Japanese team collaborating, mm-hmm. which Platinum would be awesome. All right, yeah. well, let's let's uh, let's transition into some news then, and then close out. Um, yeah. just you know, Julian, you can definitely join us for this and weigh in with some impressions if you have. Uh, so earlier this week, a couple things. So last week we missed it. There was a Wii U update. Just folks at home, if you have a Wii U, make sure you go online, check for the system update. It allows you to use folders. So the uh, sort of the clutter of buying and downloading games and apps, if it started to get out of hand, you can organize them. It's a little simple visually. Have you tried it yet? No, I, I did the 3DS update with the, the that themes. That was the other you update. Themes on the 3DS. I know. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I, yeah. I noticed. Yes, I did. I did download my Smash Brothers. Oh, there you <laughs> go. Oh, yeah. That's right. Oh, so I'm glad you brought up Smash Brothers then, because this week uh, a bunch of news happened for that. So first of all, Smash Brothers for Nintendo 3DS, 3DS has sold 2.8 million copies. This is uh, right after its launch in North America. Europe and Australia um, uh, just recently, or maybe Australia was sooner. I may have botched that. But uh, 2.8 million units, big deal. Um, and then the big news, Smash Brothers is coming out in 2014, Do- as, Does- as said on this podcast plenty of times. Does that mean you, you're eating well? I will be. So I have steak bets, Julian, uh, with three IGN employees, and they know who they are, so I'm not going to shame them publicly once again. Or maybe I will. Mitch Dyer, uh, Marty Sleva, and Greg Miller all bet that this game would be delayed back when Nintendo made the mistake of saying holiday 2014 um, yes. back in April. Yes, I remember Everyone that. Everyone freaked out, and it was like, hey, guys, if this game got delayed, what would be the big holiday game? You're kidding me. That would not be a thing. Plus, Amiibo seems to be a big thing for them. So did Reggie now promise that Zelda will actually ship as announced? That's going to be a question for Reggie when we see him. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Hey, Reggie, you said 2015. How about that? You know, uh-huh. November next year. Um, no, definitely. That's, that's a great question. But uh, November 21st in North America, Europe on November 28th, the Wii U version will be out, and December 19th. Um, for oh, actually December nineteenth for Amiibo or, or whatnot, yep. but still really really cool. Everyone's excited about this game. 
obviously the big title. Yeah. One thing though it, with Amiibo, um, I mean, they showed the next, I think, six figurines. Yeah. But uh, then they uh, and then they verified Captain Toad is coming out in North America on December fifth. But Captain Toad's Amiibo features will not be there from day one. Yeah. I find that weird. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think they they probably said, "Hey, we need to be different from Skylanders and and you know Disney in that our figurines work across a multitude of titles." And I don't think that they actually had figured it out at the time of announcement, right? Like Smash Brothers was a given, and then they're like Mario Captain Kart was a given. Mario Kart well. was a given. Yes. Like you can even see it, like the way the characters look and everything. But yeah. but then yeah, with with Toad, they probably didn't know, and maybe I'm sure they know now, but it's going to be DLC in the future. Sure, but and I. W- but I thought it was interesting. I mean, they showed little Mac as a figurine now, right? Yes. Like we see a lot more figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I mean, Julian, you guys are basically neighbors with Toys for Bob, right? Oh, of course we are. Yes, like oh, up yeah, in wow. Marin County. Lots, lots of the uh, lots of the old Factor Five guys are actually um, at at uh, the Skylanders team. Yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah. So yeah. like you guys are close oh, yeah. to the uh, yeah, to we're the right figurine. The yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. What do you yes. think of Amiibo so far? Just uh, out of curiosity. I I love the concept. I love uh, Disney Infinity um, and and uh, Skylanders, of course, as well. Um, I mean, it's it's a really, really really nice concept um, so I, I I hope that Nintendo will take advantage of it yeah. as well they've, so. they've definitely got the characters right oh yeah they, know, they, so. of course anybody yeah. anybody with characters should really do something in, in that space and and it's exciting to finally see the um, the near field stuff being used on the on the Wii U because I'm always wondering about this oh there is this near field communications chip so when are they finally going to do something with yeah, it it took they, a little bit they, yeah, I think the um, they had the idea probably much earlier, but it just shows you how long it takes to actually get the figurines going and everything. I mean, Activision had a long ramp up. Of course, we always got wind of that in Marin. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a long ramp up to Skyline. Uh, are near field chips actually cheap to produce? I mean, could it be something where in the future it could be in the bottom of a Coke can for like unlocking stuff? Or is it still the actual chip? in the product well, is fairly it, expensive. Isn't it in a Suica card? Yes, absolutely. The near field stuff, um, actually the receiver, that's a little bit more right. um, uh, That's a little bit more involved. That's why Apple currently, I, I'm curious to see if they're going to have it on the iPads, but I wouldn't be surprised if they only put it on the iPhone. Yeah. Um, but but uh, the, the chip itself, which you need for the, for the figurines, is extremely... Um, uh, non-expensive let's put yeah. it that way yeah okay. I'm, I'm curious so, to see if the other redemp- redemption features come well I'm also that. curious to see if uh, sort of Amiibo becomes part of a strategy of hey we release a game and then a couple months later this is what then spikes interest again in that game right we add other features through Amiibo because you're kind of seeing that a little bit with Mario Kart 8 where in November there's a big update that's going to add a bunch of playable characters but what is Amiibo going to add to it yeah, yeah. that's that's my next I'm mostly looking forward to the F-Zero level oh, yes man. and the Blue Falcon how cool <laughs> Is that oh, <laughs> very, very yes, cool. looks amazing? No, <laughs> yep. absolutely. Uh, no, I completely agree. So, I just I wonder if that's part of the thinking and the strategy. Like, Captain Total get its spike in December when it comes out here, and maybe again in Europe when it comes out in January. But then, when they add that amiibo functionality, everyone's talking about it again, it's relevant again. Maybe this is sort of a way to help with some of the gaps they've been having with software releases. For sure, we'll see. Yeah. All right, um, I think that's it in terms of news. Julian, it has been a pleasure, man. Like I had yeah, not met you. you up until thanks. this point, and I am so <laughs> happy you came in today. Like these great stories, like I really, really appreciate uh, yeah, your honesty yeah. and and sort of insight on all this stuff. Yeah, no, and, and I think it, it it's great that we finally got it out there. I mean, lots of things had to be resolved a little bit, and um, but it's also part to um, part of our mission simply good to get a little bit back into the limelight. Now that we've got Touchfish out there, mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of Nintendo users who have iPhones, I'm sure. Um, so if they want to check that out, that would be fantastic. 
fantastic, especially on the iPhone 6. It's it's quite gorgeous. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I'm I I would love to also work in the Nintendo space again. And in in a sense, I am. Um, mm-hmm. Believe me, there's plenty of there's plenty of work on the Hulu side on the Nintendo system still okay. to come. Got it, got it. Well, Thank you for listening to Nintendo Voice Chat. We are a weekly podcast on IGN, but we are not the only piece of content that IGN makes. There's actually a bunch of features, videos, podcasts for other platforms. Definitely come out uh, and check them out on the site. Uh, There's a ton of stuff for you. Um, and also, if you are a listener of MVC and you have feedback or questions, we do a bi-weekly question segment called The Question Block. Send it an email to nvc at IGN.com with your question. Try to keep it brief just so we can sort of get it out there and we'll do our best to answer it. Um, and lastly, if you like the show or if you have other critical feedback, either email us or head on over to iTunes, leave us a review. It helps with visibility and really helps get the name of the show out there. Uh, thank you very much for for listening. And once again, you can find Per Schneider on Twitter at Per IGN. Julian, are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter, but I'm a, I'm a lazy tweet. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to share your Twitter handle at all? Or um, no, I mean right now I have to pluck uh, Touchfish a little bit. So let's okay. let's go for at Touchfish. And myself, I'm your host uh, at Jose underscore Otero on Twitter. Thank you very much for listening, and we will be back next week. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.